It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And I saw your true colors I thought that you were mine I hoped we would be fine But surely I would find you had so many others I thought that it was great when we moved you in Now I simply cannot wait till we move you out All the confidence in us is now just filled with doubt Now that I'm less Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Les Smitten by Fred Whitaker Jr. Fred is from Youngstown, Ohio, and he's also our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Okay, Steve, so we've talked about NamUs before. You remember NamUs? Yes. It's this remarkable national database that sort of plays matchmaker for law enforcement who are either looking for missing people or trying to find the identity of an unidentified body. By putting as much info together as possible on folks who have vanished and then details about all the John Doe's and Jane Doe's found around the country, Authorities can sometimes solve their local mysteries. And there are a lot of these kinds of mysteries out there. NamUs estimates 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered every year. And a thousand of them will still be unidentified after the year is up. That's incredible. I was really surprised at that number. So I went to NamUs and I used a filter to limit just Ohio. And I found a list of 105 bodies that are in the care of various Ohio agencies right now. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children that most likely have a family out there wondering what happened to their loved one. Now, today's episode is about five cases where skeletal or decomposed remains stumped police for decades but how new technology is now advancing their cause. And in some cases, outright solving these mysteries and the crimes behind them. We're going to start with our featured case tonight, the story of the disappearance of Dorothy Madden in 1975. Now, Dorothy Madden was from Massachusetts, born and raised. She started life as Dorothy Wood, 
but took a new name when she married Joseph Madden. That marriage didn't last. The couple divorced, and by 1975, she had a new boyfriend, Nathan, and a new life in Lorraine, Ohio. Dorothy, actually, we'll call her Dottie because that's what friends and family called her, was 25 years old and the mother of a four-year-old boy. While it can't be confirmed, there was also a suggestion that she was nearly three months pregnant with her second child. Dottie and her boyfriend, Nathan, settled into a place on 11th Street, but it wasn't an easy relationship. Nathan was a military veteran who suffered from mental illness, and he was known to have violent tendencies. Dottie, on the other hand, was as passive as they come. Friends would later say a follower. On August 8, 1975, Dottie and Nathan had a late night fight. The next day, Nathan called police to report Dottie missing, saying she walked out during their argument and hadn't returned home. Police agreed to keep an eye out for the slender, five foot, five inch woman with the shoulder length brown hair that flipped up in a big curl and the soft hazel eyes. But in truth, they believed she had left on her own accord even though she had left her child behind. There was little public fanfare about Dottie's disappearance. So this story is missing all the details I'd like to share with you about Dottie's life. Really, the only other thing I can say about this period is that shortly after Dottie vanished, Nathan was confined to an institution. Now, six years later, On March 9, 1981, someone happened upon some human bones on a rural portion of Hawk Road in Columbia Station. That's about 20 miles from Lorraine. The partial skeleton was wrapped in a yellow and white striped bedsheet. The coroner guessed the victim was likely female and had died sometime probably between 1979 and 1981. For nearly four decades, those bones would sit in a county coroner's morgue. It's really kind of confounding since the bones were found in Lorraine County. It's the same county where Dottie went missing. But I can only wonder if the problem here was that the date of the death was so off the mark. If Dottie went missing in 1975, but they were only comparing missing persons from 79 to 81, it's possible Dottie's name just didn't come up. And so it wasn't until 2016, just four years ago, that authorities figured out those bones belonged to Dottie. They tested the DNA against a living sister and confirmed it. We still don't know how she died or who killed her, but we do have an idea of how it affected her family. In a Facebook page called The Unidentified Project, a woman who identified herself as Dottie's sister talked about the heartache of going so long not knowing what happened to her sister and the frustration of trying to get law enforcement to communicate with her about the case. She wrote, 42 years of my life has been spent looking for my sister, agonizing over what could have happened and doing all I knew how to do. She also had advice for families going through something similar, knowing that old bones 
and partial old bones at that, may have been a low priority for detectives, especially in the days before technology really gave them any hope of identifying them. She said, I would never take for granted that the authorities were actively and consistently looking for her. I would have personally notified the FBI, state police in all neighboring states, as well as at her origin of disappearance, sheriff departments, local police in surrounding areas. I would check every corner and every medical examiner's office in the state or nearby states, and I would have made flyers and sent them to all of these agencies. That, again, are the words of Dottie's sister. She also wrote, I am 70 years old now. All other family is gone, and there is literally no one grieving for her other than me. My family is caring and supportive, as are friends, but no one knows this heartache. Go big. Go public. Do not stop. Your loved one is somewhere and deserves to be accounted for. You know, I also wonder if the fact that Dottie was new to Ohio without roots in the community made it more of a challenge to solve her case. No doubt it adds a level of investigative difficulty when a story crosses the state line. I've got four more examples of that, cases that all had developments just in the past two years. In 2009, in Cincinnati, some men collecting cans in a filled off Sharon Road found human remains and called police. Detectives spent two days trying to find the entire skeleton since it had been scattered by animals. In addition to bones, they found rings and a pair of sketchers. The Hamilton County coroner created a DNA profile and added this find to the database NamUs. Because they had found her skull, they were able to include a facial reconstruction of what the woman might have looked like. And they were also able to add the fact that the woman had a broken ankle. That was a really helpful detail because in 2018, that's nine years after this particular Jane Doe was added to NamUs, an investigator with Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigations was looking through the missing women cases on that database and spotted a report made by a family in Ticonderoga, New York. Their missing loved one had a broken left ankle, and the artist's rendering of the Cincinnati skull looked similar enough to the photo of 62-year-old Deborah Morgan that they pursued it. Deborah Morgan's mom, who was in a nursing home, gave her DNA, and the match was confirmed. The Hamilton County coroner said, we don't even know if this is a homicide. He said, quote, we don't know how she died or the manner in which she died, but at least they're not looking for her to come home anymore. Now, here's a third case for you, a case in which not only was the victim just recently identified, but so was her killer. This story begins in 2007 in Marion, in Mar- which is in Marion County, when a man collecting scrap metal in a dump site off Victory Road found a skeleton. The remains had stumped Marion County detectives for more than a decade. 
They spent thousands of hours on the case, tracking leads that led them not only across North America, but even into Eastern Europe. They were able to make sketches and even a full clay model of the victim's face. And they did isotope testing on the remains, which suggested she came from the southern United States. Now, the breakthrough came last year when the Marion County Sheriff's Office teamed up with the nonprofit DNA Doe Project, which used genetic genealogy to lead those bones to the woman's family in Louisiana. She was Dana Nicole Lowry of Minden, Louisiana, a 23-year-old mother of two. She had been traveling across the country selling magazines door-to-door at the time she disappeared. Because her family didn't know what state she was in when she stopped calling home to check in, they didn't even know who to report her missing to, so she was never on anyone's radar. Get this, turns out she attempted to sell magazines to the mother of a serial killer. His name was Sean Great. And by the time Dana's remains were identified last year, Great had already been sentenced to death in the murders of two women in Ashland County and was also serving sentences for murdering another woman in Richland County and a fourth woman from Canton, Ohio. Great had told police he had also killed a fifth woman whose name started with a D, like Dana or Diana, that he had taken her into his Marion County home, strangled her, stabbed her in the neck, and burned her remains in a nearby field. While he said he couldn't identify Dana Lowry from photos he was shown, this past September, he did plead guilty to her murder. Now, here's another example of a case that has been baffling authorities, this time because the missing person belongs to Ohio, but the remains were found in another state. In 1993, the family of Wayne Calvin Griffith reported him missing. Wayne was 43 at the time, a husband and a father from Ashtabula County. He was last seen October 1 of that year, and his family thought he might have been headed to Florida when they lost track of him. Well, it turns out three weeks after Wayne vanished, authorities in Palm Beach, Florida, added a new homicide to their books. Survey workers had found a decomposing body near the Florida State Fairgrounds. A medical examiner ruled the manner of death a homicide, But the case quickly went stone cold. The remains went unidentified for 27 years. Then, just last month, the Ashtabula County Sheriff's Department announced that one of its old missing persons cases and one of Florida's unsolved homicides were one in the same. They confirmed the match using DNA from someone in Wayne's family. Obviously, there is still a big mystery here, and the Palm Beach County Sheriff has a murder yet to solve, but at least the family can bury their loved one. So I've got one more case to tell you about tonight, a 38-year-old cold case that is getting another look and a suggestion that this one also might cross state lines. This year, 
police in Twinsburg, Ohio, announced it had renewed its effort to solve the identity of a man that was found dead way back on February 18, 1982. He was black, 20 to 35 years old, five foot seven or even a little smaller, and had a forward curvature of the spine. They were also able to put together an artist sketch of what he might have looked like. And it appears this poor guy met a terribly violent end. The exact cause of death couldn't be determined, but there were signs of blunt force trauma, stabbing, and fire. The coroner determined he had actually died anywhere from one to five years before his body was found. He had been stuffed into a garbage bag and left behind a vacant business building. Now, I told you they think this story might cross state lines, and here's why. Another way in which modern technology is so remarkable. The DNA Doe Project used DNA from the remains and learned that they match close family living in the Lawrence County area of South Carolina. That's how close they can get to where they think this guy's family is from. Now, they haven't narrowed down who he is, but you know, the fact that they know this much suggests to me that it's only a matter of time and they're going to figure this one out. Well, that sounds like a good time to bring on an Ohio Mysteries listener to be an armchair detective tonight. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is Alex Hastie, the host of Ohio versus the World an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the World makes history fun again. Well, joining us tonight is Katie Nix from Cuyahoga Falls. Hi, Katie. Hi, Paula. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm Cuyahoga Falls, you know, born and bred. I went to Kent State. I have a master's in journalism from there, as well as my undergrad. I used to be a reporter with the Chronicle Telegram up in Lorain County, uh, and now I work as a social media specialist for the Lorain Public Library System. Wonderful. Now you've got a connection to Lorain County. So our first uh, of these five formerly Jane and John Doe's uh, is a case out of Lorain. Had you heard of this? You probably hadn't heard of this one, right? Because I had not. not and it actually surprised me that I hadn't heard of it because I was working for the Chronicle Telegram in 2016 when they would have identified her. And so I don't know if it was just, I'm sure you know how it is, but like, 
you get so many cases and you, there's so many things that kind of come across your desk within six months that they sort of start to run together a little bit. So it's possible I had heard about this case when I was working at the Chronicle and just, it didn't register with me when I heard, when I read about it. I think the one that stands out, there's two things that stand out uh, in, on this case for me. And one is how easy it seems that an adult could just go missing and police not necessarily know that it's a homicide. I mean, adults are allowed to disappear. We say it all the time. You're allowed to walk away from your life. That's not against the law. Uh, But then you've got nobody looking for you. And clearly this woman was a homicide victim. I don't know how you solve that problem. Well, right. And I think that we saw that in the, the Cleveland abduction cases, which one, was it Michelle Knight that she was an adult? And so they weren't as heavily looking for Michelle Knight as they were Amanda Berry and Gina De Jesus because she was, you know, she was an adult. She could have just walked away from her life and there wasn't anything to stop her from doing that. So I... It's crazy to think, though, that, like, this woman had a husband and a kid, and the cops were just like, oh, she ran away. Yeah, the kid really throws me for a loop because we have done episodes where the cops say, we know she didn't walk out because she left a kid behind. But that didn't seem to affect this case from what I could read. You know, she left her kid behind, but that wasn't a clue to them, and or at least not publicly. So, yeah, I the other thing that really struck me about this case was finding that Facebook page. But okay. just the heartbreak of this 70-year-old woman talking about how, you know, all these years people thought her sister was a runaway and she'd never given up hope that she would find out what had happened to her sister. And just that sense of hopelessness that she could get anybody on her side to help her resolve this mystery. I know my family so well, so if something were to happen to them, like, I would know in my gut that they, did, like, they didn't just get up and walk away. And it seems silly that like police have hunches about things like that. So I feel like when I, when a family member comes forward and says like, no, like something's off, like she didn't just get up and leave. Like, I feel like that could get taken into consideration a little bit more. And I mean, it's also crazy to think too, that like this woman would be in her seventies if she was alive right now. Uh, Cause 1975, you know, in my brain doesn't seem that long ago. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Me, too. (laughs) That was high school for me. Seems like yesterday. So the fifth of the five mysteries that we talked about today happened in Twinsburg. Do you Mm -hmm. remember this case? Yeah, I did not remember hearing about this one at all. But in this case, the thing that I loved about this story was that they have been able to figure out that his DNA can get him to Lawrence County, South Carolina, I mean, does it surprise you that that kind of technology exists? Yeah, that I mean, it blows my mind because you see stuff like that on, you know, crime shows that they're like, they run through it real quick and they're like, oh, yeah, they've got relatives out in Seattle. And you're like, how could you possibly grasp that? And it's like one of those things that I I don't know if anybody else does this, but I watch cop shows with like a very like that couldn't my parents won't watch cop shows and court shows with me at this point because I'm like, that wouldn't work. Um, and so it's kind of funny to that it 
You just ruin the whole show for them, don't you? I absolutely do. I'm awful, especially court shows. I'm like, that's this case would be so boring in real life. It would not be this interesting. (laughs) And I'm like, then there too, like there will be like, oh, somebody gets arrested at the beginning of the episode, and their trial will be, you know, a half an hour into it. And I'm like, this should actually be like two years from now. Like this should not be even remotely something we're seeing in the same episode. Oh yeah. That I, that drives me crazy. The court angle drives me crazy all the time because you know, the, the, you know, justice is not that swift. (laughs) Things are always happening the week after they catch the guy. You guys really should include jury instructions on these shows. It's like, Four hours of your life you don't get back. <laughs> now, there, um, one of the other cases we did tonight also used that technology, the case of Dana Lowry. Uh, before they figured out who she was, um, they learned that her bones were associated with family from somewhere in the South. They didn't know where. And when they found out it was Dana Lowry, sure enough, she was from Louisiana. But how crazy was that story? She not she's out selling magazines door to door and you knock on the, the house of a serial killer's mother. How bad can your luck get? Well, this and this one I did remember because I followed the Sean Great case very closely just from like a. It's unbelievable to think something like that could happen in Ashland County. I used to drive down to Columbus every week. I was um, in a program at Kent State where I lived in Columbus for a semester. And so I drove through Ashland County every weekend. So I can tell you like exactly where it is. And so I was just like, I I drove on 71 through there constantly. <laughs> like. That's oh, so wow. close. And you think of like serial killers like that being like a thing of the past, like that doesn't happen now. And so do you was, find that like when you know where a murder is related to a scene that you can never go past that scene without thinking of them? Oh, absolutely. The one that really sticks out is the top of the world over at uh, Hampton Hills. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Park, the Bobby Cuts Jr. case. Yes. That is one that I was old enough that I was watching the news every day. Like, because w- we were like home for the summer. So my mom would get up and turn the news on. And I think that one had made like national news. I think it did because it's been on some uh, national TV shows as well. Um, but I, I find myself doing that. I'll be like, driving past you know the street that leads to rolling acres and i'll be thinking here's where the grocery store was where the couple was kidnapped and executed at perkins park and now we're passing the site where margot prayed was killed and down the street is where the craigslist killer buried one of his bodies and i'm like <laughs> there's like a murder on every block but oh, you know yeah, throughout I, history but um when I was still working up at the Chronicle, I mean, and I still work in downtown, like the library system is based out of downtown Lorraine. So I'm up there, you know, all the time, but there was, uh, Lorraine does a big festival every year, uh, that they would have been doing in 1975 as well. Uh, but it's called the international festival, uh, cause they call themselves the international city, uh, cause they are just such a hodgepodge of different ethnicities and stuff. And, I took my parents up one time because the food is just phenomenal. 
And as we're driving through Lorraine to get to like, it's up on the lake. So we're driving through the bulk of the city to get there. I'm like, and this is where I was at this police standoff. And this is where we found this body. And this is where this happened. And they're like, oh my God, this is the most morose tour of Lorraine that you could possibly give us. What is wrong with you? And you can't help it. Uh, You can't help but think of it forever. You will connect those sites with it. Well, and then we had the case tonight where we talked about Wayne Calvin Griffith. And boy, the thing that really stood out for me on that case was they found his body three weeks after he disappeared. But clearly, there's that was at a time, 1993, there was just no communication, no way of knowing that the, the John Doe they found in Florida was the Wayne Griffith that went missing up in Ohio. And do you think today in 2020 that would have been solved a lot faster? Um, I don't know that it necessarily would have been significantly faster just because I don't know necessarily, like if a body turns up in Palm Beach, I don't know what the process is exactly for them to be like, okay, let's go check this against every missing person in the country. Like, I don't know how fast that process is. So, I mean, if it's something that they can just put in, you know, height, weight, that sort of thing into a general database and they get every missing person across the country. I don't know if that database exists. Well, especially if you've got 4,400 new bodies joining that database every Every, year. Right. How do you sort through there to know that this is the one? But, man, he went, they found him three weeks after he went missing, and they didn't know it for 27 years. Right. It's just because you have to imagine how much waiting they do, and eventually you have to decide to just move on but at the same time like you can't because you're not getting any answers right right you just learn to live with it it's like grief it doesn't go away you just learn how to live with it uh one case that jumps to mind about that is that i remember having the parents having a very uh like evolved idea when they were talking about it was the wetterling family and i think it was minnesota that it was Jacob Wetterling, he was like a 10-year-old boy, that he had been abducted. And it wasn't until within the last two or three years that they caught the guy that did it. And he basically pled down so he would reveal where he had buried the body. Yeah, that's not uncommon. You know, a lot of families will actually exchange part of the penalty just to get that closure and have that body back. Basically, the way they described it was in the time that he went missing, that circle of where he could be got bigger because time was elapsing. And once he re- they reached a certain point of how big that circle was, they were just like, he's not coming back. We're not getting him back as our Jacob, as him being healthy and safe. So I think they kind of accepted at that point that if they found him, it was going to be a body. And we're just sort of waiting for that closure to happen and they did find him then i mean he did the the killer did lead them to the body yeah um i don't remember what year exactly it was it was there was a podcast that had been done about it uh called in the dark and 
it was okay. a it was in 2016 that they finally found that they found the body and it was like less than two miles from his house Katie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. I really enjoyed talking about this with somebody who's got experience, you know, covering these kinds of cases. Great job. Oh, thank you so much. I loved being on. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Fred Whitaker Jr. is a rock, pop, metal-mixed artist from Youngstown, Ohio. He performs under his own name, but he has also been the drummer of a death metal band, Kitchen Knife Conspiracy, for the last 23 years. Steve, I know you love... Uh, interesting band names. How about Kitchen Knife Conspiracy? I love it. That's a good one. Well, tonight we're featuring Les Smitten. Whitaker is getting help from Scott Lowry on guitars for this one. The song is about a man who is instantly smitten with a woman whose flirty behavior and beauty instantly draw him in, but he soon learns she's flirty with everyone. This song is on the album Unexpect, which was just released digitally in March. And now Fred is working toward a CD and vinyl release, as well as a new music video of this song. Go find Fred Whitaker Jr. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep updated. Well, let's have another listen to Les Smitten by Fred Whitaker Jr. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.